You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm Dr. Carrie Beating of the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, and I am joined by my two beautiful, stunning, and brilliant colleagues and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson of Texas Fertility Center. Hey. And Dr. Abby Evelyn of National Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. What an intro, Carrie. I love your intros. You always make me feel so good about myself, even though I don't feel very good about myself right now. (laughs) Totally should. Just because it's, you know, it's a Sunday and I haven't really, you know, like, put all the makeup on and all the stuff I try and do on Monday morning to make myself look good. But Abby, you always look stunning. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. I wasn't fishing for a compliment, I promise. But if I didn't like you so much, I would probably hate you for it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just beautifully put together. And even like, I just showed you guys my uh, stunning Sunday afternoon outfit. (laughs) Sitting there, you've got a button down shirt on, you've got a cute jacket, you've got earrings, your hair has got that cute little flip. (laughs) And um, I don't ever have that. And so I'm really impressed every time. (laughs) Always, always look put together. Okay, so we were trying to think of a topic to talk about. And I'm going to supersede the topic we were going to talk about because I'm really interested in how much time do you guys spend in the wake of COVID-19, like doing your hair? And specifically what I'm really thinking about, I'm a lipstick girl. I really like wearing lipstick. And I find myself putting on lipstick before I go to work. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Nobody's going to see my lips. My mouth's going to be covered because I'm having a mask on. I want to add one layer to that question of how does it compare to what you did before COVID? Interesting. I'll take it first. So I would say I probably spend the same amount of time doing my hair as I did before. Um, Makeup. I do the same, but I probably focus on my eyes more than I used to. Yeah, Susan, I have these bags under my eyes and they look so like... I've never used like... I have this great like caffeine serum that you put underneath your eyes that kind of like makes that stuff go away. And I'm like, I have paid more attention to my eyes in this last year, but I do. So like the lipstick thing, I like the lipstick too, but my thing is, you know, half the day I'm doing video consult. And so people, people are still seeing me. The people who see me in person don't see my lipstick, but the people who see me on my video consult. But you know, I think when you do a video consult though, you don't really, you don't really notice if people, I mean, I, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell if people have makeup on or not, kind of almost when they're doing video conferencing. But I'm I'm so pale and fair skinned. Yeah, me that, too. Like I just, you know, I I want the contrast in the places I want the contrast. Yeah, that's a good point. In, in fact, I, I think that I have actually probably been more critical of like my hair and my skin because I'm sitting there looking at myself all day. Whereas like, you know, used to, I mean, if I happen to go to the bathroom and I'm washing my hands, I may glance up and see myself in the mirror versus now, I mean, I spend a a significant portion of my day actually looking at myself. Yeah. (laughs) What about you, Carrie? Um, Did you know that plastic surgeons are booking out for facial procedures far more now than they ever have in the past because of Zoom phenomenon of people staring at their faces and being super critical? Um, Mm -hmm. But I, so before, well, after COVID, I mean, my 
my daily wear has turned into exclusively scrubs. And I spend maybe five minutes on my hair and I don't do makeup. And I, and I never have. So the difference between me post pre COVID is maybe four and a half minutes versus five minutes. <laughs> because I have to actually think about before COVID, I was actually thinking about, okay, what am I going to wear and making sure that, you know, everything was clean and pants matched. And I know that this is setting up a really an abysmally low standard, but <laughs> am I going to blatantly embarrass myself or my practice? No. Okay. We're out. And, and that is my standard because I don't. So why do you wear scrubs more now? Just out of curiosity, because I have my own bin on that too. I've changed my wardrobe a little bit. Why, why do you just wear scrubs all the time now? So it started because I was the primary doc in my practice covering during mm. COVID. And, and so when we would do the, the garage strip show, yeah. especially when it came out, where you like walk into your, you know, get out of the car, close the door of the garage. I am proud to announce that I have never accidentally given the neighbors a strip show. <laughs> it is Vegas. It is Vegas, but you know, they should pay for that stuff. Um, but the flip side of that is that, um, you know, you kind of lose, lose all the clothes. It's easier to do a scrubs. It goes straight into the laundry. It goes on the high sanitation setting because that's where I'm out and about. Because if I'm not going to work, I, you know, spend 15 minutes at the store, but that's really it. And so that's why we have switched primarily to scrubs. And that started mostly because I was the main person in my office who was in the office for the first part of COVID. And so those habits have stuck through this subsequent year. What about you, Susan? Are you wearing the same thing? More scrubs, less scrubs? I think in the middle of the summer, kind of in that peak time period, I was wearing more scrubs because I would I would come home and like... I was the person in my family who was having to go to the grocery store and things like that. So I would come home and kind of strip down. I I have to say in the fall, when the numbers dipped, I kind of got out of that and got more into, you know, I wear scrubs on days that I'm going to do an egg retrieval or embryo transfers or surgery or something like that. And then I wear what I would consider, you know, professional clothes other days. And then during the kind of resurgence, I, I stayed in that kind of, you know, I didn't go back to the um, stripping when I come home type of thing. And it, it honestly, I mean, it didn't seem to make a difference with my family in particular, but you know, um, every, everyone's situation is, is unique. And so um, uh, mine's a mix depending on what I happen to be doing that day. Yeah. I've, when things started with COVID, it almost felt like Armageddon or something. I felt like I was going mm. into war and I almost never wear scrubs. And I don't know why, because I just, I kind of like to dress up. I like kind of picking my outfit out and putting stuff together and wearing jewelry. I, that just, I just like doing that. I think that's maybe an extension of just sort of kind of like, I like art and colors and mixing. And so I, I kind of put some thought into what I wear. And so I used to wear a lot of dresses and so I, I really have not worn dresses or skirts much at all in the last year, a couple of times, maybe so much so that I would even wear hose with my dresses. And if you go to a mall right now and you try and buy hose there, I felt like it's, I feel like it's what women talked about in World War II. You can't find hose and I don't know why that is. Um, so anyway, I haven't worn as many hose or and as many dresses and skirts as I used to, but for a while there I did, I was wearing more scrubs going into work. And after a while I thought, particularly when it came out with COVID that it wasn't so much touching things that you could get COVID. It was mm-hmm. more airborne kind of illness. I'm like, why am I still wearing scrubs? You know, I'm not really that, on the, that much on the front lines. And we were doing a lot of telemedicine. 
So kind of about the end of the summer, I kind of went back to my more normal kind of wardrobe, minus the lipstick. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's definitely, I'm I'm pretty low maintenance as it is in part because I'm terrible at knowing how to do it, like how to do it and not look like a clown. You will fabulous. <laughs> that's not my not my mo or strength at all. But okay, so question of the day today um, is is another good one. So this patient says, "I've been diagnosed with unexplained secondary infertility, thirty three, and have had a recommending moving forward with IVF, but the unexplained still haunts me. I had a C section with my first child, have had a saline sonogram scheduled, but are there any other tests I should consider before IVF? What do you guys think?" So saline sonogram, HSG, and what else? Um, has had five IUIs, had a prior C-section with her first child, and she's only 33. So it, it actually seems like this is kind of a two-part question. One is, what other tests should she consider? And uh, I would assume that if she's had five IUIs, all of her ovarian reserve testing and his semen analysis, all of that's already been done. Well, I don't know. I think sometimes patients that have come from other practices, sometimes if they're fairly young and if they've had children before, people don't routinely do ovarian reserve testing. But if it hadn't been done, I definitely think that needs to be done. And same thing with sperm. You can't assume, because I have several people right now who got pregnant pretty easily the first time around. And lo and behold, we've retested the semen and found that for some reason now, sperm counts are lower. So I think I think you need to do those basic things, do tubal assessment, which she's had, um, do ovarian reserve assessment and do semen testing because you don't want to do something for six or eight months and then find out at the end of that that, oh, lo and behold, there's no sperm or the tubes are blocked. I mean, that's that would be a game changer. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely do those things. Are, are there any other things that you would add in, Susan? Um, I would also, if, if she hasn't had carrier screening, I see a lot of people who come in with secondary infertility and, you know, they've never had carrier screening. Um, Jason, just making sure she's not like a fragile X premutation carrier. Um, because the, those people, even though they may have normal ovarian reserve testing, they, there's actually some decent studies that show that they too also have a harder time getting pregnant, um, even with IVF and things like that. So um, that's one additional thing, kind of looking for a red herring per se um, of something that else that could add in. But kind of along the the note of unexplained infertility, I I think, you know, when when I talk to my patients, uh, number one, having the diagnosis of unexplained infertility is is a very, very frustrating diagnosis. And I completely understand that. However, I, I also like to put that in, in perspective in that a lot of times when we do find a reason for the fertility problems, it's a lot harder to deal with than unexplained infertility. So sometimes not finding an answer is, is, is actually a good thing. Um, and two, um, if, if you wrote a book about everything that was uh, about how to get pregnant, all the intricacies, all the hormonal things, all all the you know things that we know that happen in in early pregnancy, and you write a book about everything we can actually test. That second book is probably a quarter as thick. Okay, and, and so there's just there are things we know that happen that we just don't have the technology. Um, to non-invasively test. And obviously, you know, our lives are helping make babies. And the last thing we want to do is accidentally disturb something that's going to be a precious gift. And so, um, 
there are still lots of things to be discovered in our field and how we can do additional diagnoses. And, and, you know, those things are coming out all the time. It's just, there's so many pieces to that puzzle. So um, just because we don't have a reason doesn't mean that there is not something going on. Well, and even if we don't find a reason, we still want to do some things to improve the chances. So we want to try and change the tipping point, even if we don't know exactly what the problem is. And I agree with you, Susan. You know, I always tell patients that, yeah, it may make you feel better if you know the reason why. But I I think back to when I first started out and I had a patient that, you know, I did surgery on for lap for, and at that time we were doing surgery more commonly just because that was part of the workup. And I remember her saying, well, I kind of hope you find something, Dr. Evelyn, then we'll know the reason why. Well, when I got in there, she had just horrible endometriosis. And I remember thinking, well, we found the reason why, but it's probably not something, you know, you're you're happy that you have. And so um, I think the the opposite side of the coin, like you said, is if you have unexplained infertility, that means, you know, you have a pretty good chance of being pregnant, you know, you know, not too far distant in the future. Whereas if you had some really difficult problem to do, to, to, go through, it might involve doing something a lot more expensive and a lot more involved like IVF. So um, unexplained is not always bad, I guess, is a way to say it if you had to choose. What are your thoughts, Carrie? I mean, I agree with everything that the two of you guys have said is that un- unexplained is not necessarily a bad thing. There's still ways that we can approach it. Um, you know, about The things that we can find are oftentimes really big, bad, and ugly. And, and that letting it haunt you it, there's two ways to look at it. One is the the approach of everything was perfect before and now it's not and it's unexplained. And the other way to look at it is that everything was equally as bad before. I just got really lucky because I had a child spontaneously without having to go through treatment. And, and so there's a decent chance that whatever was going on before was... Uh, what whatever's going on now, excuse me, is what was going on before. And you just got really lucky and you had a kid without having to work nearly as hard for getting pregnant. And and so a lot of times we all see those those crazy stories of, you know, that go around the office of, hey, did you know that so-and-so got pregnant on her own? Where everybody is stunned. <laughs> and and the reason they're stunned is because we know why they shouldn't have gotten pregnant at all. <laughs> and they did anyway. And so you know, take, I don't, I don't think I would give this maybe as much brain space as you're giving it and just say, okay, you know, we've tried all the routine things. We're doing all of the normal preparatory steps and it worked the first time. It's not working the second time. Naturally, we don't know why let's give it a little boost and let's make this a distant memory. But I don't know that I would dedicate potentially quite as much haunting brain space as, as maybe this reader listener has, has given this. So, all right. So our topic for today is tubal reversal. So let's start off with the basics. Abby, can you go through what we mean when, when a patient comes in and says, can you reverse my tubes? Can you go through what that is likely to mean? Like, why are they asking that? So usually when somebody comes in to discuss a tubal reversal, usually they've already had a child before. And a lot of times we'll see that, you know, maybe the partner has not had a child, maybe, you know, and and so therefore they want to have a baby together. And so, you know, a lot of times people are really intimidated by the other alternative that we can potentially do, and that's in vitro. And so they think, well, if we just put my tubes back together, I'll be able to get pregnant. And to do a tubal reversal, it is a surgery. 
And I always tell patients, you know, that if it works, sometimes it works really well, but it's there's a lot of question marks. We don't know exactly where your doctor did your tubal ligation, meaning we don't know, you know, if he did it close to where the uterus is or close to the far end on the fallopian tube, and that can make a difference. We don't know how big a piece of tissue was removed, and that can make a difference. And so a lot of those things, even if we read the operative note, which I always do, and I learned the hard way, always read the operative note to see what they did. A lot of the operative notes are very similar in what they say. And so it's really hard to make good sense of how much tube was removed and where it was. So I guess what I'm alluding to just sort of the big picture is you never really know as a surgeon until you get in there what you're going to find. And you never really know as a patient how successful it's going to be until after the surgery's over and you've had some time to try. Because even if the tubes are put back together, sometimes scar tissue can form that down the road can block the tubes and, and it may be not be successful after you go through that whole process. So just to back up a little bit for our listeners. So when people have their tubes tied, there's a couple, there's a few different ways that that can happen. Um, so there are things called fallope rings, which essentially is a little ring that's placed on the fallopian tube that essentially kind of squeezes it shut. And that damage can cause scarring that helps kind of ensure that egg and sperm do not um, meet up together. Um, I do believe it has the highest chance of failure um, <laughs> amongst the different types of um, permanent sterilization, but um, those are sometimes placed. Um, sometimes the fallopian tube is actually burned. So that's most often if somebody has an interval um, tubal ligation. So they go in, they have a laparoscopy, and then usually between a one to three centimeter segment of each fallopian tube is um, burned to create the tissue that won't allow egg and sperm to meet up. And then the other type of tubal ligation is where an actual segment of the fallopian tube is essentially cut out. And sometimes the, the remaining ends are cauterized or burned as well. And there's also a clip. I was, I was trying to make a sign to Susan so she could remember that. There's also a clip. We see a lot of fill sheet clips around here is what we see for tubal ligations. And Susan, does it really matter which one of those you have? Well... If you have a clip or a ring, you're theoretically probably going to have more remaining tube that can potentially get put back together um, as compared to having a segment burned or actually physically removed. But it also depends on how many clips the doctor decides to put on the tube. That is that true. Before they put like three or four clips and then it damages a lot more of the tube than what you think it's going to be damaged. Absolutely. There's also the eschores, which... People are not receiving now nearly so much, but there was a time when it was a really, really popular way of blocking off the tubes. And, and the Escher was an uh, is the other one that they were both um, these tiny, tiny coils that were put inside the tubes to deliberately um, incite scar tissue. So it will be blocked. And what that does is that creates a pretty significant barrier for the scar tissue. Mm -hmm. That's true. But the procedure, I I have never removed an Esher. Have you, Abby? 
No, and I don't I don't really know that there's many people that are able to do that because that's that's right where the tube connects to the uterus is where it's damaged. And that's really a tough place to try and fix the tube. But in fact, one of the things when I talk to couples about tubal reversal is the amount of tube that's remaining. So the two things really from a fertility standpoint that make a difference when you're trying to fix a tube is how much remaining segment of the tube that you have once you put it back together. And so whether you put a clip on or you burn it or no matter what you do, there's a piece of the tube that essentially dies. And Susan mentioned earlier that if you use electrocautery, you damage a, a lot of times you damage a bigger segment just because when the doctor cauterizes the tube, not only where they cauterize the tube, but sort of areas kind of on either side of that can be damaged as well. So you never really know to go in how much tube is going to be left. And also where the clip or where the cautery is done makes a difference. Ideally, we'd like for it to be in the middle of the tube because that piece of tube, if you resect that dead piece in the middle that's either been clipped or cauterized or whatever, and you sew those two segments of the tube together, they're about equal in size. And it's a lot easier to sew those together, even though they're microscopic. Um, it's a lot easier to kind of oppose those two edges together better because um, it's just, it's it's not like you're putting a big piece of tube back together with a small piece. You're putting two equal size segments together. Um, so it's, it's, it's tricky and you never know until you get in there what you're going to find. So Abby, how much tube do you ideally want left on each side to have the best outcomes? I'm trying to remember a number on the flip side. I, I think I'm thinking six or seven centimeters, but I could be off on that. But I, I think that's about right though. But typically if I, if a patient's had a postpartum tubal ligation, meaning you go in to have a baby, you have your baby, and then they take a piece of your tube out. A lot of times if there's a path report, it'll give a measurement. And usually most of the time when a physician removes a piece of fallopian tube, it's about a two, two and a half centimeter segment. And that's a reasonable amount of tube. If that amount has been removed, it's probably going to be one that we can put back together pretty well. If a much bigger segment has been removed, or if in some cases, if the whole tube is removed, that's a problem. Which we're seeing more and more nowadays. Yeah. And that's why it's always important. If you're, if you're going to have a tubal reversal done, you need to request a copy of your operative note. That's a note that a doctor dictates at the time that they do your tubal ligation. And a lot of times just reading between the lines, you can see that it may or may not be the thing that will work for you. For example, if they mention that you have a lot of scar tissue in your pelvis, you worry that the far end of the tube can be damaged. And, and I tell patients, if the far end of the tube is damaged and you also have this tubal ligation, that's not going to be a tube that we're going to want to put back together. So it's good to get a copy of the operative note to really see what the doctor did, because not all do doctors do the same type of procedure for permanent sterilization. Um, and, you know, when they're doing surgery for permanent sterilization, you're telling them you don't want to have more kids and they don't want to be the doctor that's delivering your next baby after their sterilization procedure has failed. So, you know, I don't blame doctors for putting on a bunch of clips or burning a lot of the tube because when you come to them, you tell them you don't want to have more children. And so um, so we've just got to figure out what they've done before we try and put the tubes back together. So how is a tubal reversal different for someone who has had their tubes locked intentionally because they thought they were done having kids versus someone who just throughout the course of their infertility workup discovers my tubes are blocked? That's a good question. That's a good question. Well, with somebody who's had their tubes tied, we know that there is a specific segment of tube that is damaged. Whereas somebody who has tubal blockage that has naturally occurred either from infection or endometriosis or due to, you know, whatever may have caused 
scarring, because it, it's essentially some form of scarring, that entire tube has been exposed. And I and both of them have been exposed. And again, I think in a prior episode, we talked about kind of the anatomy of the tube and that a, a tube is more than just a pipeline. It's a dynamic organ that has to move and it has these little projections that help egg and sperm and embryo get where they need to be. And if we don't have healthy tissue, just opening up that pipeline is actually potentially going to cause more harm than good because of that increased risk of ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy in the wrong place that can act really in real life be a life-threatening condition. And, you know, in 2021, you know, we, we like to avoid those things. <laughs> and one other important thing too, when you're talking about factors that may or may not make us want to reverse the tube, the other thing is age. So typically your doctor should look at a couple of things uh, ahead of time, like how old you are and what your ovarian reserve is, because you may have blocked fallopian tubes and you may have gotten pregnant really easily before. But if you're now 45 or, you know, over 40, your chances are going to be really low with tubal reversal. And so in those situations, we might think about something that's a much quicker route to pregnancy and a lot more successful, which would be like IVF as opposed to doing a tubal reversal. And on the same thought is when you're thinking about getting your, your tubes tied, if you have a male partner, please, please, please have him get a semen analysis because the last thing we want you to do is go through an invasive surgery and then come to find out we don't have enough sperm to get you pregnant with something short of IVF and then have to do IVF anyway. And so um, that that's that's another factor that that I see occasionally. Sometimes people go and get their in Texas, you know, sometimes people go get their um, tubules reversed across the border and things like that because it can be less expensive, but there ne not hasn't necessarily been that male fertility evaluation part. And then people come back and it's like I can't get pregnant and we do the HSG, the tubes are open. Um, but then we end up having a male factor. So that that's something else that I encourage patients to be proactive on their part is if it's not offered, ask for a semen analysis before getting your tubal reversed. What are your thoughts, Carrie? So I was actually going to move forward with the next question of just, well, how do you know if, obviously, if a tubal reversal has worked, you're pregnant, but how, how do you make the determination of we've given it enough time and this isn't working, we need to do something different? I usually say, and it depends a little bit on the patient's age, but usually in the front end, when we do the tubal reversal, I'll say, I like patients to wait two or three months before they try and get pregnant just to decrease the edema in the tube or the swelling in the tube. Because one of the risks with tubal reversal is a tubal or ectopic pregnancy. And so it's really important, number one, once you do get pregnant and have that positive pregnancy test, call your doctor's office. We want to get you in ASAP to make sure that you have a pregnancy in your uterus. So your chances about, you know, maybe five to 10% of having a tubal pregnancy um, if you have a tubal reversal. So you really need to get in to see us very quickly. And then ultimately, you know, we can assess kind of, you know, where the pregnancy is. So timing wise, you wait two or three months to try and get pregnant. And then depending on your age, if it's been more than about six months as a general rule, and that can be changed a little bit with age. If you've not gotten pregnant in that time frame, we probably should do a tubal patency test and really could probably even do that sooner to look and make sure your tubes are open. Um, 
if your tubes are open, you know, again, it depends on your age and your ovarian reserve. But, you know, it's just like human reproduction. It just takes a little while to get pregnant if your tubes are open. But if you're over, I would say over 35 and certainly over 40, I wouldn't give it a real long time because ultimately, you know, you're, you may just not be able to get pregnant. And whereas if you do IVF now, something a lot more aggressive, you'd have a better chance of getting pregnant more quickly. I agree with that, Abby. And I, I think sometimes most, as we mentioned before, most of the people who have had their tubes tied have had children previously and um, they can get lured into a false sense of security of I've had babies before and I'm not going to have any problems. And that's, that is not always the case. And so we, we know there was obviously one factor cause it was man-made. Um, but um, in all humans, your best chances of getting pregnant are in the first six months. And so I would definitely err on the side of caution. I mean, you, the, the, this group of people obviously are very actively trying to seek pregnancy. They're very intentional about it. And if you haven't gotten pregnant in that time frame, it's very reasonable to kind of get everything rechecked and potentially consider, you know, adding something to the regimen um, to help improve egg and sperm interaction. I would, I would agree with all of that. I think that's pretty much all of the basics. You know, the other thing that people always ask, is there anything that I can do to make sure that this is more likely to work and be successful for us? Go to somebody who does lots of tubal reversals. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally speaking, I would say most reproductive endocrinologists don't do many tubal reversals anymore. And the people who do them do a whole lot of them. Um, if you have a doctor in your area who has um, previous military experience, they tend to do quite a few tubal reversals in the military because it's a, a covered service. So they have lots of experience, but um, just like everything else, you want to go to somebody who, who does a whole lot of it. That one is worth traveling for, for your surgeon. Yes. Yeah. And one other thing to consider about that too, is a lot of times, even if you have fertility coverage, a lot of times tubal reversals are not covered because it's something you've chosen to do. It's as opposed to if you had tubal issues for some other reason. So expense of it should be taken into consideration too, because you know, if you had fertility coverage and you had coverage for IVF, then hands down, I'd go the route of IVF as opposed to choosing tubal reversal. Mm-hmm. All right. Excellent. Any other things you guys want to add to that? Do you think that, that that you think we may not have covered yet? I think we got the big things. I think we hit all of the, the major points. So excellent. Wonderful. Thank you very much, ladies. I just love talking with you. It's such a nice way to spend an afternoon. Um, to our audience, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We would love to hear from you. You can also visit us at fertility.suncensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or to submit a specific question that you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously and the more unusual and fun, the better. All right. We'll see you all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.